Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Eve, one o'clock in the morning. He was hiding in the shadows of a bus shelter, playing on a victim. Some girl to walk out of the nightclub and follow her. Imagine the nightmare. Women are vanishing. Three, four, five, all from the same small city. Julie, Sylvia, Beverly, and little Kira. And then there's Natasha, Natasha Ryan. Hello again, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. So many interesting cases, so little time. I get so excited when I start a new case, and I think that this is the most interesting case. And then I start the next one, and I think, no, this is the most interesting case. Well, today I have another most interesting case. I first heard about this one quite a number of years ago on one of those, I don't know, Dateline, something like that. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't a podcast I heard it on because I do remember watching news footage of it. Anyways, it was not on my radar as a podcast case because it doesn't fit my criteria, uh, for lack of a better word. But somebody asked me if I ever encountered a case like this one And then I remembered it and I thought it would make a good episode. So let's see if it does. This is the mysterious case of Natasha Ryan and the serial killer, Leonard Frazier. But wait, you say, Kim doesn't cover serial killers. That's true. I'm going to get there. You just need to be patient. You need to stay with me on this one because it's going to get a little crazy and Hopefully it's one that you don't already know so that you can be surprised by how it all pans out. We are in Australia today. I love Australia. I was there once with my family when I was 13. Now, fortunately, at that time, I didn't know about all the snakes and spiders that graced the land there. So I was able to actually relax and enjoy the trip. 
I, I honestly don't know how anyone does it there with those brown snakes. They, they come in through your plumbing and try to kill you. I think that you listeners there are badass, but it is a beautiful and friendly country. And although the landscape is a stark contrast to ours here in Canada, the people share many of the same values and ideas. And we always seem to make great visitors to each other's lands. Separated by half a globe, we are but one people. You're going to hear some snippety clippets, and some are from 48 Hours Mystery, and others are from 60 Minutes Australia, um, just so you know where they came from. This is, um, they're fairly old. I mean, it's funny, you hear something from the 1990s, and I think to myself, oh, that's just fairly recent, but eh, it's like 20 some odd years ago. We start in the small town of Rockhampton, Queensland, the hometown of Natasha Ryan and her family. Natasha Ryan was born in 1984. When she was 14, her brother Chris was only six. Her other brother Jason was just a toddler. And then she had an older sister named Donna, who I can't confirm her age, but I think was probably around 20 at that time. Her parents, Jenny Kerwin and Robert Ryan, divorced. And Natasha was feeling a bit overwhelmed and kind of angry with the world. She was depressed and acting out, starting to experiment a little bit with drugs, um, some self-harming, and had gotten herself a boyfriend who was quite a bit older than her. 22-year-old Scott Black, who worked as a milkman, which was something I didn't realize they still had in 1998. Natasha had started skipping school and had run away from home a couple of times. And the second time, you know, it was in July of 1998. And then she only... uh, only to turn up a couple of days later, very contrite and promising to never do it again. So her mom, Jenny, had taken to dropping her off personally at school and had forbidden her from seeing Scott. And things were kind of starting to turn around a little bit. She was still a brooding teen, but had started back to attending school fairly regularly and had stopped crying and arguing with her mom about Scott. On the morning of August 31st, 1998, Jenny drove Natasha to the front of her school where she gave her mom a cheery peck on the cheek and said, I love you, hopped out of the car, bounding towards the doors of the school. When Natasha didn't come home from school that afternoon and still hadn't arrived home by the next day, Jenny took the matter to the police, as she had done the previous times, but this time it just felt different to her. Because of her previous runaway attempts, the matter wasn't really taken particularly seriously. Um, Everybody, and maybe even Jenny, figured she would return again home after a few days when she maybe ran out of money or started to miss her family. But unlike the last two times, she didn't return after a few days or even after a few weeks. And Jenny and Robert were starting to really fear the worst. Then, in December 1998, a 39-year-old woman named Julie Dawn Turner went missing in Rockhampton. Julie had worked for a time at an Albatross, and on December 28, 1998, she left Rockhampton's Airport Liberty nightclub in the early hours of the morning in a rather intoxicated state. Apparently broke, she had asked around for enough money to get a cab home, and when no one came forward or gave her any money, she started walking, and from there, she disappeared. Julie had previously told friends that she was moving in with a guy named Lenny, but she hadn't elaborated any further on that. 
Only three months later, in March 1999, after Julie's disappearance, 37-year-old Beverly Lego also disappeared. She was last seen at a bank near the East Street Mall. Police started to wonder if Natasha's disappearance might also be connected to these women's disappearances. Now, I really wish I'd been able to get more information on Julie and Beverly's cases, but unfortunately, they were completely overshadowed by the events that take place after. But I did learn that Julie Turner had a daughter named Kylie. Um, She now works in youth justice. But all I could really find were some vague dates and their names and ages. Police launch an investigation and start to actually search for Natasha. They managed to track down a witness that says that she was seen that afternoon at a movie theater before getting into a vehicle that sped off. They track down Scott Black, who Natasha had been dating, and search his apartment, but they find no traces of her. He claims to have not seen her since before she disappeared. Most disturbing is that there have been no footprints of life from Natasha since August 31st, when she was first reported missing. Her bank account hadn't been touched. There were no further sightings of her after the movie theater. On April 17, 1999, police were tipped off and led to this rundown Queensland hotel by a wrecking crew who had made this horrific discovery. In room 13, the carpet was completely saturated with blood, and there was blood sprayed all over the walls and ceiling. There were also bone fragments in the carpet. And in a downstairs freezer, police found a pair of women's shoes that were submerged in, like, I guess the freezer had filled with just completely filthy water. Police believe the blood to belong to another missing woman named Sylvia Benedetti, who was 19 and last seen on a bench talking to a man at the Rockhampton Mall. The attack had been so savage that the victim would have lost about four liters of blood, which was about as much blood as a woman the size of Sylvia would have had in her entire body. Police and residents are convinced by this time that these disappearances were all connected and there is a serial killer working in their tight-knit little community putting people pretty much on edge. On the afternoon of April 22nd, 1999, a feisty and music-loving nine-year-old, Kira Steinhardt, was on her way home from school. It was only the second time she'd been allowed to walk home from school by herself, and she had cut through a vacant lot as a shortcut. And so this vacant lot was actually filled with very, very tall grass, and then there was a bit of a trail, this shortcut trail that had with the matted down grass in it. So while she's on that matted down trail, she was struck from behind and then loaded into the trunk of a man's car. Now we know all this because an eyewitness saw this man actually load the girl's body into his trunk and she called the police. This was a brash and brazen abduction in broad daylight Now, fortunately, what the eyewitness hadn't been able to see clearly because of the tall grass in the field that Kira was walking in was that after thumping her on the back of the head and knocking her to the ground, the man had raped her there in the field. Now, based on the description given by the eyewitness and a prison guard named Ben Robson, who saw the reports of Kira's disappearance and immediately called the police to inform that they might want to look into a particular man. 
Leonard Fraser was traced to the vehicle seen in the neighborhood where Kira disappeared from, and they surprised him at his door under the ruse that they were following up on a complaint about a break-in to his car. Lenny Fraser was a meat cutter at a local slaughterhouse and known by locals as a violent man with an odd way about him. Just to give you a little bit of idea of what kind of guy good old Lenny was, when he was 15, he was sentenced to a year in the Gosford Boys Home for theft. After his release, he assaulted a railway guard. He had a ton of convictions for things like driving without a license, stealing cars, transporting stolen goods, and all of that that soon followed those initial charges. In Sydney in 1972, he raped a tourist at the Botanical Gardens, a crime that he wouldn't be found out and convicted for for at least two years. At 10 o'clock in the morning on July 11th, 1974, which was just three weeks after he was released from Long Bay Prison, he approached a young woman um, as she was walking along the road in Sydney and attacked her from behind using what would become kind of his calling card, where he would twist the woman's arm up behind her back and force her down um, into an, an embankment there where he raped her. Then, under this delusion that the woman had actually enjoyed being raped by him, walked with his victim back hand in hand back up to the road before taking off. Six days later, at 9 p.m. on July 17th, Fraser assaulted a 20-year-old woman who was working alone in a nearby Mount Druitt cleaning shop. He followed her behind the counter, and when she went to look for his dry cleaning, he did the same thing, held her hand up behind her back, and he was about to rape her when he was interrupted and fled when the other some other customers came into the shop. Three days after that, in Rudy Hill, um, again, which was similar proximity, he was talking briefly to a woman when she was just walking along a road, and then he punched her in the face and forced her arm up behind her back again, like he always does. Um, now, this woman remained very calm, and she actually talked to him and convinced him that you know, yes, I'm I'm in the mood for sex, of course, and I'm gladly going to do it. I just, you, can we just go back to your house so that we can do this on your bed? And so, of course, Leonard's, you know, walking, holding this poor woman's hand um, back up the rows. And as soon as she got a chance, she broke free and she fled to the nearest house that she possibly could to call the police. Now, Leonard wasn't exactly hard to find. He had left his wallet with his birth certificate in it at the scene, um, so he was quickly located and taken into custody. In December 1974, at the Sydney, Sydney District Court, um, Leonard pleaded guilty to two counts of rape and two counts of attempted rape. And the court psychiatrist at that time assessed him that he was beyond help. Quote, he has no conscience that's at all. He will use anyone and anything to his advantage without giving a lot of thought to anyone's any other people's feelings. He has little or no impulse control. Apart from this, there is no real psychiatric disability. There is no known treatment for this type of psychopathic state, end quote. So with all of this in mind, Justice Wooten sent uh, Leonard to prison for the maximum of 22 years and had to very reluctantly set um, the parole eligibility period at what the law considered the maximum seven years. Quote, but I wish to make it clear in doing so that I am not in any way suggesting that you should be released at the end of the period. 
end quote. So he was released in 1981 after serving the minimum of seven years and made his way to um, McKay in Queensland and took a job as a laborer on the railways there. In 1982, he gained entry into a woman's house by pretending that he was interested in a car that she had for sale. And then once he got inside, he grabbed her from behind, held her hands up behind her back. Um, and then to uh, the amazement of the investigators, the woman said that she had talked Leonard into allowing her to phone her husband while the physical assault was taking place. And then during that call, Leonard took the phone and then told the man, quote, I hope you're not going to kill me. I just wanted to prove a point that somebody could break in and rape your missus. So he was sentenced to two months in jail for aggravated assault on that uh, particular victim. Once out of jail, he then met a woman named Pearl and seemed to have actually settled down a little bit. He was he even had a daughter with her named Missy and managed to hold down a job um, as a laborer on the railways for the next two and a half years. And then in late 1985, he stalked a 21-year-old woman for several days, actually, while she would just went about her business. And then he brutally raped her in broad daylight. So again, that time he wasn't hard to find again. And then he was sentenced to, he was considered regarded as a dangerous man by Justice Darrington. Um, quote, they meaning the victims would regard you as being the equivalent of a filthy animal. It meaning rape is one of the worst forms of degradation on another human being you can think of. And it deserves no sympathy whatsoever. He was sentenced for that offense for to 12 years in jail. And so while he was in Rockhampton's Etna Creek prison, he became known by the other prisoners as Lenny the Loon. He was considered very erratic and he had very unpredictable behavior with violent outbursts that could be triggered for no apparent reason. So it was considered wise to just give him the widest berth you possibly could. And he was actually forced by the correctional management team there to serve out every single day of his 12 years because they they knew that the minute he got out, he was going to reoffend, And he did get out in January of 1997. He moved in immediately with a woman who was terminally ill um, in Yapoon, which is a, like a coast, coastal city south of Mackay. Um, he managed to befriend her by telling him that he, telling her that he was friendless, he was broke, he had nowhere to go. Uh, and that woman had, she had actually been corresponding with him and visited him a few times while he was in prison. Now, that relationship actually developed into a, like a sexual relationship. But Leonard, of course, became progressively aggressive towards her. And so when she left the house one day to go get treatment for her cancer, Leonard followed her. And when she refused to come home with him, he allegedly raped her right there in the hospital chapel. Um, that woman, unfortunately, died six months later of cancer. So he returned to Mount Morgan in April of 1999, which is a mining town of about 3,500 people um, on the Burnett Highway, which is southeast of Yapoon, but very near Rockhampton. 
Um, now he was kicked out of the first apartment he went to when the landlady actually caught him having sex with her blue healer cattle dog in the backyard. And that is a true story. Anyway, so that's a little bit about what we're dealing with here with Leonard Frazier. So when the officers knocked on his door that April afternoon, his first words out of his mouth were, I'm not a child molester. And now he didn't initially want to come to the station to talk about his car uh, because he wanted to, he thought it was better to stay there in the neighborhood and actually search for this little girl that was missing, which is kind of disgusting and chilling that that missing girl that he wanted to stay and look for was actually um, Kira. But when he was assured that, you know, he wasn't being accused of anything, then he, he did come in. So Lenny refused to give up any information about Kira. He maintained his innocence completely. But after two weeks of interrogations, like back and forth, going back and forth, he finally broke and confessed to little Kira's abduction, rape and murder, and then led them to her body, which was in a heavily wooded area where she was found propped up against a tree in the bed of a creek. She was naked from the waist down uh, with her sweater up around her neck and her throat had been cut. Blood evidence was found in the trunk of his car, which did belong to Kira. And they also made some pretty gruesome discovery of some more blood that didn't belong to Kira in the trunk of Leonard's car. But the samples did belong to Sylvia Bendetti, Julie Turner, and Beverly Lego. And then they also found hair in the form of severed ponytails from three different women in his apartment, one of which the previous owner of that ponytail has never been identified um, but the police have no bodies and the DNA evidence is still in its infancy. So what they really needed was a confession. We strongly suspected who our man was. She was last seen talking to a fellow, smoking a cigarette, and then wheels were heard to spin and screech and the car sped off. We investigated all links, all leads, ran them all out. And unfortunately, they all came to dead ends to, uh, to get sufficient evidence to link Fraser to murders when we didn't even have a crime scene, a body, no tangible evidence. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, Australia doesn't do Mr. Big stings. They aren't admissible there, but they do still do undercover stings, and sometimes they use informants. And so a notorious con man looking to make amends for his past named Alan Quinn, who was once featured on Australia's Most Wanted list, told police that he would be able to con Fraser into a confession. So they took him up on that offer. 
So Alan befriended Leonard and shared exercise time in the yard with him daily. And then as time progressed, Alan was wired to actually record these conversations, which he did for two years. Leonard sat in prison waiting to be tried for the murder of Kira. Um, They were hoping that they could also link him to the other murders. Now, Quinn actually agreed to stay in prison past his actual prison term to get the confessions and ultimately locate the bodies for the families of the victims. Uh, Fraser was so excited when he talked about serial killers. And I said to him, I said, look, Lenny, if you want to be a serial killer, you can't be a serial killer unless anybody knows what you've done. I said, you'll have to give up the, the bodies of your victims. You'll have to tell them the story. What was in it for Fraser? Why, why in the world would he want to tell you about these crimes? It came to me one afternoon. He said to me, He'd prefer to be a, uh, in a psychiatric ward than be in a prison. So you convinced him if he told you everything he knew, he might be able to get transferred to the psychiatric facility instead of this prison. That's correct. Leonard revealed to Alan that he had taken Beverly to Nankin Creek. That was like a popular spot for kids because there was a rope tied to a tree limb there that they could swing on and then splash into the water. So once there, he hit her over the head tied the rope from the tree around her neck and pushed her over the water and hung her. Fraser then laughed as he said, quote, you should have seen her kick when I let the rope grow. I heard her neck break and then she stopped kicking and her legs dangled in the water. It didn't take much to kill her because she was really skinny. I took the rope off her and dragged her up through the water hole into the long grass where I put her on that ditch. I made sure I pulled the tall grass back up as I went so there was no trail left behind in the grass. To make sure she was dead, I placed her black sporting briefs around her neck and pulled them tight. So if she woke up, she wouldn't breathe. She would die. End quote. As for Sylvia, he described killing her as, quote, I bled her like an animal. He said he met her at the Rockhampton Mall and that he, she was unhappy with where she was living and was going was kind of going through a bad time with her boyfriend. Quote, I took Benditti to a disused hotel, to room 13. I told her that I had drugs stored there. I tried to kiss her. She didn't like it. I hit her and knocked her out. I went downstairs to check if anyone had heard her scream. I went back upstairs and she was lying there staring at me. When they are unconscious, they always stare at you. I knew I was going to be in trouble, so I picked up a block of wood. I thought it was a block of wood. It could have been a window counterweight. I don't know, but it had serrated edges, end quote. He then bragged about having driven around in his pickup truck with Julie Turner's body in the back um, that he'd covered with a tarp, driving it past a police station. He said that he picked Natasha up when she asked for a ride to Yapoon and he knocked her out when she had fallen asleep on his shoulder during the drive. Nine months after confessing to all of the murders, he led detective to a wooded area, which is likely full of deadly snakes and creepy crawlies just outside of Rockhampton. This is the where you reckon we should go in? Is there uh, something at this area that, uh, no, or there, there might be something at this area? Okay. Got a big cluster of palms here. We're at the site now, and there's um, what appears to be skeletal remains here. And there they found what was left of Julie's remains. 
um, minus her head, and Beverly Lego in another area, and what remained of Sylvia had previously been discovered by surfers near Sandy Point Beach. Her entire remains have never actually been recovered. And then he provided maps to where they could find Natasha's body. And like Robert and Jenny were just waiting on anxious pins and needles for word of her remains being recovered. So all of the bodies were found as skeletal remains. So they had to be identified one by one. And the process um, actually takes weeks each time. Leonard said that he had buried Natasha between Rockhampton and the coast behind an abandoned house. He, um, he said that he had killed her under a mango tree on the property and then had buried her using a trench digger. They dug that property up from stem to stern using cadaver dogs, um, everything they could think of, but they hadn't been able to come up with anything yet. You can't put it into words, you know, like every day you're thinking about that person, wondering what they'd be doing today, you know, how they would look today. He just, people say time, you know, time heals, but in this case time never healed anything. It just, the longer it got, the worse it got. But they had a very strong case against him for all the murders. So Leonard was put on trial Originally for the murder of Kira Steinhardt, that was in August of 2000, he was found guilty and given a life sentence. He offered this particular apology, quote, I'd like to say to her mother and father, I know a lot of people won't believe me, but if you check my background, it's not my go to harm a child. I'm just sorry this is happening. I don't know what made me do it. At least I can try to. I'm going to try and get help after I get sentenced and all. So that's a good step, end quote. On Natasha's birthday, May 7th, 2001, her family held a makeshift memorial releasing balloons into the sky. She had missed her sister Donna's wedding in which she should have been a bridesmaid. Um, She would have been 17 at that time. Kira's mom, Teresa, became just kind of lost and unable to deal with, with the loss of her daughter as she fled to Melbourne, leaving behind her surviving son and husband and lived really the next 10 years in a deep depression. It wasn't until early 2003 when Leonard Fraser was going to face prosecution for the other women's murders, and Robert Ryan, Natasha's father, took the role of leader and supporter for the families, making sure that he was there every day to face down his daughter's killer. Then, on the 12th day of the trial, something unusual and unexpected happened during a lunch recess. When the prosecutor, Paul Rutledge, got a phone call from the Rockhampton police. I was standing outside the courtroom against the glass walls that overlook the courtyard. They'd recessed for lunch. I just went downstairs out in the courtyard, I'm going to have a smoke. Someone came down to me and said that you've got to get back upstairs. Paul Rutledge is looking for you. I asked him to come over and sit there and uh, I I sat down on the same seat facing him. And I thought I might have got caught winking at one of the family members and I was going to get in trouble. Paul Rutledge's words to me is we found Natasha. And I just slumped down and then Paul said to me she's alive. Uh, So what the what what? Now, obviously, I'm going to get to that part and tell you the amazing and unbelievable details. 
but I, I just want to finish off this trial of Sylvia, Beverly, and Julia. Now, obviously, Paul Rutledge informed the court that Natasha had been found alive and wasn't guilty of her murder. Unfortunately, that didn't make the police look too good. Um, but fortunately, the jury believed the evidence and she he was convicted of murder for Sylvia and Beverly and then manslaughter for Julia. Um, and Leonard actually yawned and stretched his hands behind his head as that verdict was handed down to him. He was given three additional indefinite prison terms. And on May 28th, 2003, he appealed, of course, which was denied by Justice Brian Ambrose, who deemed him an untreatable psychopath. On Boxing Day, or December 26th, as some might call it, um, 2006, after serving a total of eight years in prison, he started to complain of chest pain and was taken to Brisbane's Princess Alexandria's hospital, where he went into cardiac arrest and quietly passed away in his sleep. Queensland Premier, Premier Peter Beattie at the time said, quote, I don't think there will be a great deal of sympathy for him. His crimes were horrific, and while no one likes to see someone pass away... I don't think there will be a lot of grieving over his passing. I don't think anyone will be shedding any tears. Leonard Frazier was 55. Okay, so what the heck, Natasha? Where have you been, girl? Now, I'm just going to play you sort of the contrast between dad and mom's reactions to her reappearance. They said, is there anything you can say to your daughter that only you and her know? I said to the voice on the other end of the phone, if you were my daughter, what would your dad call you? She says, Dad, it's me, Grasshopper, and I love you and I'm sorry. I dropped the phone and the rest of the day was pretty much a blur. We were probably together for no more than seven minutes at the most. I looked at her, she looked at me, she cuddled me. You've got to imagine that I've got a million and one questions I want answered, but then it wasn't the time. I just said, I love you, and we'll try and sort through this. I just didn't want to see her. I hated her. I could have grabbed her and just shook the hell out of her. But when I seen her, you forget all that. And she looked at me and she just said to me, I'm sorry. And she had tears rolling down her eyes. I don't blame mum for being so incredibly hurt and angry because on August 31st, 1998, what happened was Natasha decided to skip school again and she went to the movies and was picked up by this boyfriend, Scott Black, the 22-year-old boyfriend and milkman. Scott took her to his place, which was a 45-minute drive from the home that she shared with her mum. And she lived at Scott's place, um, isolated from everyone, never leaving, never speaking to anyone besides Scott and her cat for four years. Neighbors never suspected a darn thing. And anytime Scott's family would come to visit, she would hide in their bedroom closet, not making a peep, earning her the later nickname of the girl in the cupboard, which wasn't really accurate. They lived actually together like a couple, only a couple where only one of them could leave the house while she stayed at home with the curtains drawn. She spent her days watching TV and videos, working out in a home gym that they had set up. Um, 
She learned what she would have learned in school on the internet, taught herself how to sew so that she could have new clothes. Her only outings were a couple of trips to the beach in the dark of night. In 2003, they actually moved together back to Rockhampton and settled only five minutes from her mom's place. And when she saw on the news that Leonard Fraser, who she didn't know, was currently on trial for her murder, she called the like a kid's help phone and told him who she was and that she was safe. Um, but whoever took that call considered it truthful enough and wrote an anonymous note to the Rockhampton police and provided them with the number that the call had originated from. So the police were able to come and retrieve a rather shaking, pale, and terrified Natasha from her closet. Now, her reasons... I just felt angry at everybody and everything. I didn't want to be at school. I didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to be there in that life. And if Natasha wasn't already at the time the most hated woman in Australia, she decided that she's going to tell her story, but only to reporters that actually pay her, which turned out was 60 Minutes Australia, for which she was paid $100,000. She knew that everyone was looking for her. That's right. And that a man was being tried for her murder. And she did nothing. She did nothing. And since she's come out of hiding, she's done nothing to give back to the community. In fact, all she's done is put her hand out and take. She's taken money for press interviews. She has an agent. I think she's a very conniving young woman. Is there any sympathy within this community for her? I haven't heard any at this stage from anybody I've spoken to. Oh, there's certainly been a, um, a massive waste of community resources. And um, it's one of these things that need not have happened. The whole thing, I believe, should have been um, stopped a lot sooner than it, than it was. She could have come forward a lot sooner. In 2005, Rockhampton District Court Judge Grant Britton sentenced Scott to three years in jail, uh, which was suspended after 12 months. Um, that was for perjury after he pleaded guilty to telling investigators um, that he didn't know where Natasha was. And in 2006, Natasha was found guilty of causing a police, a false police investigation, which cost the community about $400,000. And she was fined um, $1,000 for that. Now, Magistrate Annette Hennessy ruled that she didn't have the means to pay those costs of the investigation. So in those same court proceedings, Scott Black was further punished by being fined $3,000 and ordered to pay back $16,000 towards those investigation costs. In 2008, when Natasha was 24 and Scott was 31, the couple married in Byfield's Ferns Hideaway in front of 35 guests. They reportedly sold their exclusive wedding photos to Women's Day for $200,000. Um, I guess her mother had forgiven her by then and said, quote, the weddings, the wedding gives Natasha the opportunity to start afresh, end quote. According to the Courier Mail, after the wedding, she changed her name to Tash and they have three children together. Now, there's no reports on if they are still married today. In 2011, they appeared in court due to an incident in which the couple had been heard arguing at their house about moving their vehicle into the garage. And when the police were called, Scott refused to give a breathalyzer test. 
Um, Black's defense lawyer argued that he had been drinking heavily and his judgment had been affected and told the court that his client was frustrated because he had only recently lost his job as a delivery driver uh, and had his license rescinded. But there are more victims in this case. Natasha's brother, Jason, was only six when Natasha reappeared in his life and coupled with his parents' divorce, neither of which did he get any counseling for. He says he was depressed and hated himself, which is, though, no excuse for the fact that he choked his girlfriend, pushed her off a sofa, cut her with keys and beat her and then turned to his own child and covered his mouth and nose so hard that he popped his eardrum. Um, He was convicted of battery for that in 2021. And that was the mysterious case of Natasha Ryan. Aren't you glad you hung in there for that one? What an absolute crazy story. Now, I didn't have the time or the energy really to get into it, but Missy Rigby, who is Leonard Fraser's daughter, was interviewed, and there's a very detailed write-up in an exclusive called My Dad's a Serial Killer. So I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes for you if you are interested. Also, in a little bit of a, I guess, kind of a defense of Natasha, in a later interview about a year after her reappearance, she was quoted as saying that she she knows why she did it and that she didn't feel there was any point in trying to explain it and basically that she was taking that information with her to the grave. And in the 48 Hours report that was done in 2017, Robert Ryan revealed that he had actually lost contact with Natasha again and had only heard that she'd had the first baby that she had from the news, but he'd never seen her or met the baby. So it sounds suspiciously like there's something about her relationship with her father um, that caused her some significant distress, but um, I don't want to throw any accusations out there. So who knows why she really did it? I guess only she knows that. I will be back again next week. Uh, And again, thank you so much for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.